47 years of rich history and Australian Stockhorse bloodlines. The Dolby Stockhorse Sale is the largest affiliated Australian Stockhorse Sale in the nation. The Dolby Stockhorse Sale and this episode is brought to you by the Ray White Rural Dolby and the Darling Downs branch of the Australian Stockhorse Society. Find them on Facebook. Five and recover. <laughs> Not even high pressure, I don't know the word to describe it. <laughs> from the saddle. I'm Caitlin Hewitt and this is From the Saddle. Alice Maben may be a very familiar name to your ears. Known to her fans and readers as Elle Maben, a self-published author and photographer. Bill Little captured on the Brinkworth Cattle Drive is the iconic image that wraps around her first, but certainly not last, best-selling book. Photographs that Elle has captured in the most raw and real environments of Australia's agricultural sector are now nestled in homes around the world. These coffee table books are bound by Alice's uncertain times, dedication, instinct and self-belief. Their front covers read The Drover, The Driver and The Grower. An incredibly determined sense of will with a strong desire to discover the unknown, Alice's journey is nothing short of gutsy but amazing. From a near-death experience at the age of 15 to herding sheep, Alice's winding road led her to Australia. A nice job, great income and a sense of security, she chose her hard and left it all behind, unexpectedly ending up on the Brinkworth Cattle Drive. Joining me, Caitlin Hewitt, Alice shares her story of heartache, risk, uncertainty, and a hell of a lot of accomplishments. From the saddle. From the saddle. So Alice, Australia wasn't always home. Where was home? And what was Alice like as a kid? Was she always this, I don't know, seeker for a, you know, a thrill? Yeah, so I guess by my accent, you can tell that I grew up in New Zealand. Growing up, yeah, I was horse mad, just rode horses every day of the week. You know, I'd probably dreamt about them if I could eat my dinner with them and breakfast and mm-hmm. lunch, I probably would have, you know. Um, I was just horses, horses, horses and, uh, and yeah, was always very driven. And, and often people, you know, look at what I do now and will we'll say, you know, how come you're so driven to be like this? Like it's quite rare to see someone so enthusiastic and and out there doing doing what they're doing, even though there's a lot of trials and tribulations along the way. And and I guess they like to you know hang it on something. And I think even before I had my horse accident and and spent a lot of time in a coma and was resuscitated three times, like I was I was still a really go get a child before that. But I think once I had my accident at fifteen and was very lucky to survive. You know, doctors said that I would um, I would be brain dead if I you know came out of the coma and wouldn't walk and talk again. And and yeah, to to come out of that and to pretty much have no no side effects from that you know anymore. Well, that's what I think anyway. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is is a pretty special opportunity I, I see, you know, and and so I I do live every day as though it could be my last. And you know, often when I'm traveling, you'll meet older people who, through one health issue or another, you know, a stroke, a heart attack, or whatever, you know, the big C, realize that life's too short just to 
tick along and be on the hamster wheel and, and they decide to get out there and do things, which is wonderful. But often it is you know, two thirds of the way into their life. Whereas I, I feel I was really fortunate to have a, a near death experience at 15 and, and be able to take the bull by the horns then and, you know, run with it and really live. Okay. So let's recap for a minute. Alice, for those that are listening, that sort of going, who's Alice Maben like and what's she doing on here? You are the author and the brains behind the books, The Drover, The Driver, The Grower. You've also written your own book, The Winding Road. Let's go back to the start and you just spoke about your accident. Tell our listeners about your accident. When you were 15 years of age, February the 10th, 2002, 600 kilos of horse almost killed you. Yeah, so I was um, doing an eventing competition, so trying to qualify for the the New Zealand eventing team and it was in the cross country and in the previous years gone by, you know, I'd always come in just a few seconds over time with the cross country and yeah, I was really determined to to come in under time and, and qualify um, and I was, yeah, just going way too fast and um, and came into a into a, a water jump and my horse slipped and yeah, flipped and landed on my head and I mean, I have no recollection of it so what you read in The Winding Road, I've actually, you know, dragged the skeleton out of the closet and I've, you know, listened to people who were there on the day and, you know, managed to get the hospital to dig out um, my medical records from the accident and I managed to track down the doctor who's now retired who, you know, saved my life there and then in the field. And I've listened to these people tell me their version of the story because I, I actually don't have any memory of it. So what's built there is built by listening to other people, which was pretty tough to listen to, you know, to, to sit there and swallow. And it's been a long time as well. So you're going back to, you know, ask people to drudge up a, a memory that probably they don't even want to remember, let alone me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was, I guess I, you know, I have no recollection of it. I have no recollection of, you know, much of my life before that and have really sort of had to piece it together through photos and, and people telling me things and creating new memories, you know, from, from then on. So you just said that you don't have much memory from life before that. So as in like childhood or like just bits and pieces leading up to that day or what do you mean? Um, yeah, no, a fair bit of my childhood, um, you know, I don't have like a lot of memory. So, you know, I've managed to get a lot of photos and things like that and, and really, you know, brought memory back through through seeing images and things like that. And when people have told me stories, you know, that that has stemmed a lot of memory to come back and, and I've actually been able to say, oh, yeah, and this happened or I actually remember that. So, so yeah, by people telling me things and by seeing pictures, I have been able to bring a lot of it back. But yes, uh, in those weeks leading up to the accident, I've got no idea where I was, what I was doing. I've got no recollection of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't actually get that from your book. I didn't, I never, ever grasped that from your book. Yeah, and I, I don't think I've ever really told anyone, so here we are. <laughs> <laughs> we have that effect. <laughs> I guess there's, there's some things that I'm like, yeah, I can tell people about this accident, but yeah, you know, leave a few few bits out. So in your book, I'm going to read the paragraph that you start chapter one with. There was an audible crack as my helmet hit the ground. Loppy slid off the jump, tumbling onto my head with his legs in the air. 
I don't remember feeling pressure in my head or the pain in my collarbone shattering. He rotated to find his feet, then rolled right over me. Onlookers gasped as I lay motionless and unresponsive, face down in the dirt. Way to rock my Friday. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. And and like I, you know, naturally it's a it's a severe head injury that, you know, you you go on to read about. So you don't remember that. And you know, you mentioned as we were chatting earlier that it doesn't define who you are, but it is a hell of a part of your journey. Yeah, like I guess I've learned to to use it as as part of what makes me me today. You know, in, in all of the experiences that, that I've had, you know, I mean, I got hit by a truck and that saw me do the truck book and I'm sure we'll get to that part, you know, but I, I've had all sorts of various things happen through my life and even just not having family that were able to support me through all of that stuff because, you know, they just didn't have the tools in, in their toolboxes to do that. Like, I don't see it as a poor me thing. I really look at it and go, well, the fact that that's how my world has played out has given me the strength today to pretty much take on anything, you know? Yeah. There's there's been some really rough rides in this whole self-publishing book journey and being a photographer and, you know, really trying to set yourself up that, you know, someone with sort of a not as much um, gusto and and strength there probably would give up many times over. And look, there was plenty. I mean, I've cried myself to sleep so many times and I've had, you know, zero dollars in my bank account going, how am I going to make this stuff work? And, you know, I, when the drover came out and nobody wanted it, I just thought, God, I've made the biggest mistake of my life, you know. And so I gave all the books away. Like there's just so many of those things. So, and I look at it and I think, you know, I, I came through this accident and I've put myself through university and school and I've moved to a foreign country on my own and, you know, set myself up and got to where I am. And the reason why is because, you know, I, I had to sort of learn about that strength of looking after myself, you know, as, as a really young person. Alice, you mentioned that, you know, the people around you didn't have the tools in their toolboxes to support you. What was your relationship like with your parents? I guess, you know, like even before the accident, I was, as I said, I was a really driven person. So, especially after the accident, there was this element of trying to wrap me up in cotton wool and, and, you know, I just wanted to get on and be a normal person. I didn't want people to make excuses for why I did what I did or said what I said or, and, and they did, you know, my mum would say, oh, you know, she's just saying that because of her head injury. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not <laughs> saying that at all because of my head injury. I know exactly what I'm saying. But yeah, I guess I, I didn't have a great relationship, um, you know, with, with my family, you know, they, they weren't supportive and, and just, just that general acknowledgement, you know, I, I worked so hard to get straight A's and, and to be really diligent at school and, and, you know, the one person I always wanted to acknowledge, you know, what I'd done in my hard work and gee, even when I won New Zealand show jumping champs and, you know, got a hundred percent in a school exam, like it was never good enough in my mother's eyes, you know? And, and so you look at that and, and people can think, oh, that's so terrible. But actually that then drove me to, to work harder and harder and harder. And once I was able to look back at the stuff as, a, as an adult and see how that drove me to always strive for the best I could possibly do and, and how I do things today, I then learned that, you know what, 
getting her acknowledgement isn't actually going to change anything these days and and I'm okay with it you know so again I'm grateful for it because it makes me yeah the strong person I am today and and I really can look inside and acknowledge within myself when I know I've done the best job that I can at something because people are always trying to cut you down absolutely yeah (laughs) but it's a yeah, it's tough when it's your mum or it's your dad. And and like you said, that you could look at it and think, you know, poor me, but you're looking at it on the other end of the scale saying, well, if it wasn't for that, then I wouldn't be fighting my own battles like I, I am and that I've done. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I often think, gosh, who would I be today if, if I you know, had had a really different upbringing and, and a different type of nurturing from my family? Like, would I even live in Australia? Would I have done what I've done? Would I have travelled the world? It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, I just, I always look at it. I mean, even when I moved, first moved to Australia and, you know, worked on stations, like the first property I ever worked at was you, Audrey. And coincidentally, that's obviously where the cattle from the cattle drive ended up. And, and so I end up back there 10 years later, you know, with this cattle drive. And, you know, I broke my leg when I was at your Audrey and the doctor said, you know, you'll never farm again, sell your dogs, you know, go and get an office job. And I don't know why I listened to it. <laughs> really the last doctor that told me I wouldn't walk and talk again was wrong. But for some unknown reason, I, I listened to this doctor and I, I sold my dogs and, and started applying for jobs in, in the agribusiness sector, you know, and, and ended up working for Pfizer and, and actually ended up back in New Zealand, which was, you know, not where I wanted to be. I wanted to be in Australia, but, you know, then working for Pfizer and I had this amazing corporate career that took me all over the world and I was super successful at it and then ended up back in Australia, you know, doing that. And, and so I look at it and I think, you know, I if I hadn't broken my leg, I would have never ended up, you know, taking that corporate kind of path, which gave me the set of skills to then be able to start my own business and be really successful with it. You know, often I'll, you'll meet clients. I mean, back in the day, you'd, you know, see shops and they'd say to you, you know, you, you operate like a corporate, but without the red tape. (laughs) So I look at it and think if I never broke my leg, would I still be, yeah, just working on a farm? Don't know. Take me back. You had your horse accident. You went through your recovery. You know, you came out the other side, especially after being told that you wouldn't walk or talk again, right? You you beat all odds. How long was it before you actually got back on a horse and what did you do after that? I believe I got back on a horse about nine months later and... I was back riding racehorses every morning before school. I mean, that, that's how I earned my money. Like I, I learned at a really young age that money was my exit strategy out of my home life. You know, if I could save my money and buy a car and and could move out, then then I could look after myself. So I used to ride racehorses every morning before school and I got paid $5 a ride and $10 an hour. And on a, on a good morning, you could ride anywhere between sort of yeah, four and five horses in an hour. So, you know, I was earning sort of 35, 40 bucks as a kid, (laughs) an hour cash before I went to school. So I would, you know, turn up at the track at four o'clock in the morning and I'd go to a friend's house at eight o'clock and have a shower and off I'd go to school, you know. So I'd put four hours work in before I went went to school and and so I just saved all my money and and yeah was able to buy a car and the day I finished school I got on a boat and 
never went back. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> so, um, so seventeen. Uh, I was I was eighteen. Yeah, I was. I'm a July baby, so I was right on the cusp of, um, you know, do you get pushed forward or held back? So, and I was held back. So, yeah, I was eighteen. On a boat, off to where? Uh, off to off to the South Island. Yeah, so I was born in the North Island, and then went to the South Island and, yeah, went riding racehorses down there and went to university and started doing uh, med school with the vision to come back to do vet in, in Palmerston North in the North Island. It was very hard to get straight into vet, so you could do a bridging year with the med school first year. And and then I just decided I, I ended up working on high country stations while I was um, while I was at uni and I just fell in love with it and decided that a bachelor of science would do me and got out. <laughs> <laughs> so I used to pretty much live uh, live on the station and I'd just drive into into university for you know practicals and tutorials that you had to turn up for and everything else I did online because just yeah working on a farm just got into my veins and I was like, this is where I want to be. So what did this involve day to day? Um, so like, yeah, I, I just lived on a farm and I, I guess I was like Australia's version of a, of a Jillaroo. You know, I, I spent um, I spent about $10,000 um, of my savings on on buying some work, really good working dogs, which, which was the best move I ever made because they really taught me. They taught me about where to stand and where to be and they were very, you know, natural and, and wonderful dogs. But in fact, I brought some of them to Australia when I first moved over here and one of them became the first uh, border collie uh, bitch in Australia to get a perfect score in a dog trial. So she was, yeah, she was a pretty cool dog. But day to day, you know, was stock movements and, and irrigation and, you know, your typical landmarking and mustering and, and all those types of things, shearing. So, yeah, just your standard sort of sheep and beef operation. So you obviously didn't have any experience in this other than being able to ride a horse. Yes. <laughs> where did this come from? Like where, how, how did you navigate this? I guess I just never, I, I just believed I could do it. You know, I just went, well, I want to give that a go and, and, and put my hand up and said, hey, can I do this? And, you know, I guess I was very lucky at that point that, my parents had family friends down in, in central Otago who had a station and sort of they took me under their wing and and I guess they really sort of instilled those first um, lessons in me about farming and things like that and 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 gave me the start that I needed and, and I, you know, learned a bunch of stuff. And then, yeah, when I left university, I applied for this job up at Lake Tekapo at, at Glenmore Station, which was just absolutely picture perfect if only I was into cameras back then <laughs> gosh like I used to look out my kitchen window at a you know blue lake that was just glass and you could water ski and snow ski in the same day and you know sometimes you'd climb the mountain um to muster sheep and you'd be above the clouds <laughs> first thing in the morning and yeah it's just an incredible property and I, I remember driving up the driveway to um to this place for my interview and there was not a fence batten out of place there was not a wire broken there was not a weed there was not a branch down in a in a paddock from a tree like it was just a postcard picture perfect looking place and I just thought to myself there's no way I'd get a job at a place like this and um, anyway I interviewed with him and and turns out that I, I ended up getting the job and it turned out that I was the first woman that they'd ever employed because they had very old school owners that believed you know women belonged in the kitchen mm. 
and uh, and they'd taken me on. So I was I was pretty chuffed with that, and I just I just loved it. Like, and you walked everywhere because it was high country. You know, you just couldn't get around on a motorbike and things like that. It's very different country to Australia, though. Yeah, and I mean, and I found when I first moved over here that you know anywhere you could put a dog, you could put a motorbike, so people could, you know, still achieve the same thing without dogs just with with bikes and I I do remember when I first got here and I sent a dog out you know and I gave it a whistle and it and it sat and it's you know four or five hundred meters away and the jackaroos beside me were just doing somersaults and their jaws were on the ground going how on earth do you get your dog to stop out there and I'm like what do you mean you know I just whistle it, it sits. And they're like, I can't get mine to sit beside me. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess I, you know, I did again, like I just didn't realize that in New Zealand, it's so important to have, I mean, when you go for a job interview, it's, it's this, this extreme. When you go for a job interview in New Zealand, the first thing when they ring your references, the first thing they will ask is how good are her dogs? Right. They don't ask about you. Like that's that's what will get you a job or not in New Zealand. So you know, it, it was just yeah, it was just natural that you always had you know because they they're your tools, they're your extensions of your arms to help you get the job done. And so I was quite fascinated by that when I when I got here and and you know realised that people did a lot of this stuff without dogs. And I thought, gee, it makes my life pretty easy having these dogs because I just send them out and yeah, they have their commands and. Off they go. So when you first started in New Zealand on the station, how good were your whistling skills? I didn't. I couldn't whistle. Yeah, <laughs> I, I had to. Actually, I, I was talking to someone about it the other day and I was like, have you ever had a New Year's resolution? They're like, no, not really. And I said, I think I've only ever had one and it was to teach myself to whistle. And I think it took me three days and, and I had it down pat. And, and a lot of the a lot of the blokes um, were very jealous because I learned to whistle through my teeth and didn't need to use a, a plastic dog whistle or anything, and 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 most people can't do that. So yeah, <laughs> I copped a lot of horrible looks from people who were jealous that I could whistle properly. So you've just started to work out that you do have a love to be on the land, and you need to buy dogs. How did you know what to look for or how did it unfold? You went to a dog sale and you just went, I like that one, that one, that one? Um, No, I actually used it as an opportunity to try and sort of see if I could rekindle something with my dad ah. because dad was always a very good dog person. And um, and so I, I rang him up and I said, you know, would, would, this is what I want to do. Like I'm passionate about this. And, and dad was actually quite, he, he was quite all for it. Mum wasn't because she was determined that I was going to be a doctor or something. And but dad was like, oh, like someone's interested in the land. This is all right. And he sort of nurtured it a little bit. And he did. He came and helped me buy some dogs. But it, it sort of fizzled out there. That, yeah, there was no further interest from their part. Part of, of being involved, but yeah, I got Dad to help me help me do that and and pick some really really good dogs that, you know, some were really well trained that would help teach me, and then we got some younger dogs that you know I could train and and bring on as I learnt more. So yeah, did you find that dogs taught you things about yourself in this journey? Oh, absolutely. I mean. Yeah, I, I recall, um, and I, I talk about it in The Winding Road, I recall um, 
we would autumn muster every year, which meant we would camp out in the mountains and, and bring all the sheep off the mountains before it would snow. And on this one particular day, the, the beat that I was given was called Hell's Gates. And so you, every morning, you know, you would all climb out up the mountain and, you know, you'd almost comb the mountain where you'd all walk together in a in a line with about sort of three or 400 metres between you and comb the mountain and push all the sheep down to the riverbed. And I got the top beat on this day called Hell's Gates. And you get up there and, and it's just a system of bluffs and it's just like straight down below me and straight up, you know, to my right. And I was on my hands and knees crawling through um, these bluffs and, and I had to have my dogs all stay behind and call them across one at a time because if they'd come across together, you know, one would have undoubtedly, you know, knocked the other one and fallen off the cliff and fallen to its death, you know. And, mm. and so it was just, it was amazing. And I just remember my hunt away, you know, barking at me and I just stopped and I froze with fear halfway across this bluff. And one of the guys down below is radioing me to see if I'm okay. And I can't even lift my hand to talk on my two-way radio. <laughs> oh my um, and I just, yeah, I really felt like at that point, my dogs are what got me through it. And, and, I, and I used to remember, you know, one of my dogs, um, the, the really good trial dog that that guy brought over here, you know, she was so amazing with three sheep, but then she could pull a really big mob of sheep to you, you know, three, four thousand on her own. And and then I had another dog, Tess, who didn't want anything to do with three sheep. She wasn't into dog trials, but she'd love big mobs and you know, she'd come back from pulling a big mob into you and she'd just run and leap into your arms without <laughs> warning and be like, did you see that boss? You know, like, did, did you see me do that on my own? And, you know, and I just, they just all had such beautiful personalities and, and they were, you know, they were my friends as much as anything because as a girl, you know, I was sort of a bit of a trailblazer on the land. There weren't a lot of women working on the land back then and, and you know, you copped a lot of, you know, oh, you can't do that because you're a girl. And, you know, so I really confided in my dogs and they were my buddies. And they became your family. Yeah. So back then, like you said, there there weren't a lot of women on the land and you did cop a lot of that, don't worry, leave that up to us. You're a woman, you can't do that. Was there much of this or did you find it faded out or, you know, you being you, Alice, you were, I guess, determined to prove them wrong along the way. Yeah, I, I, I was absolutely. Um, I think I still cop it today. Yeah, <laughs> as sad as that is. Um, but I guess you know, I was very conscious of the fact that I didn't want to become some hard-ass woman yes. trying to, you know, outdo the men and show them. Like, I was like, I very much want to keep my feminine aspects and be treated like a woman, but not be sort of pandered to and, oh, you can't do that, you know, and then have to prove myself the whole time. So, you know, it, 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 and it's still a, a juggling act today. Um, and, and I'm always learning more and more about how to be and how I can do that. But especially when it came to working dogs and things like that, I identified very quickly that I had a, a natural ability and and was pretty impressive with my dogs. So you did garner quite a lot of respect fairly early on. Um, and, and then I sort of found, you know, as you started to ask more questions and, and want to understand more about the processes and, and what goes on in the given year instead of just being given day-to-day -day tasks, that I actually became threatening to them because, you know, I, I was probably asking more managerial questions and, and, you know, threatened other people's positions. And it was just because I was so interested in learning. 
Isn't that funny? You know, my husband, he's the third generation grazier along with his two other brothers. So they all work together and his mum and dad are still on the farm and it's a family operated thing. But they cannot, and along with the rest of Australia, cannot find employees that are genuinely interested about the operation. And here you are saying that I was, you know, wanting to just soak it all up and yet it was seen to be a threat. Yep. (laughs) And I don't know if it was just because it was like, you know, that generation or being a woman. I mean, I've never, you know, sat down and tried to analyse it or work it out. But, you know, even when I broke my leg and ended up working for Pfizer, um, but before I did that, I applied for lots of jobs with, you know, agribusinesses and rural merchants and things like that, like at, I don't know, Landmark and Elders and those types of places. And, and every time I got the, oh, no, thanks for your, thanks for interviewing, but we've taken on someone with five years' experience. Mm. And I would often say to them, well, well, that's all fine and dandy, but what do you do when that generation of people runs out and you mm-hmm. haven't bothered to train anyone else? You know, yeah. anyway, when I ended up working for Pfizer, um, I worked it out really quickly that the reason that they they didn't employ me was because, again, I was a threat because I was a thinker and I was trying to forward plan and be more efficient and and that was threatening to the managers that that were interviewing me. Right. (laughs) And because then they became my customers when I worked for Pfizer (laughs) (laughs) and I could see it all. I'm like, oh, I get this now. Now it all adds up. Yeah. <laughs> so, Alice, how did you end up in Australia? Like, life sounds pretty great and, you know, you're living your best life in New Zealand, but you ended up in Australia. How? Just seriously, I I had a Saturday off. I went to the, to the local village and brought some milk and a newspaper and in the newspaper was a, a job advertised for, you know, a a station worker, a station hand in in Australia, but it was a local phone number in New Zealand to call and just curiosity got the better of me. And so I rang up and asked the question, said, what's going on? And it turned out to be the father um, of the bloke who was managing a property over here was recruiting people from Australia, from New Zealand, sorry, to come and work in Australia. And so I went and had an interview with him and then they flew me over to, to interview here and I took the job. Wow. I just went, uh, I'm going abroad. <laughs> How old were you at this point? Um, I was 20. Yeah, 20. Oh, it seems so young. I think it did at the time too, yeah. <laughs> so landed in Australia, were you like, what is this hot country? What am I doing here? Yeah, and like, so I, I brought four dogs over with me. They lost all my bags. I think I had three bags or something to bring over. They lost my bags, but <sighs> I had my dogs. So off I got shipped to the station with, with my dogs and no clothes. And, and then they found my bags, so I went back and got them. And yeah, my, I mean, I remember giving a command to my dogs. I mean, one of, one of the commands they used to have was a look command. So they would, you know, look up a mountain and see where all the sheep were. And then you could give them a, a cast left or a cast, cast right and off they'd go. But you, you give them a look command on the flattest, most treeless place on earth on the high plains and <laughs> <laughs> there's not a lot of uh, not a lot to see <laughs> so the dogs learnt really quickly to um, stay on the back of the ute because that was a vantage point um, and then they also had just never dealt with things like burrs or cat heads you know like mm. so they were constantly running around on three legs and I think they were more like what on earth have you brought us to <laughs> yeah how did they adjust I mean I, it was a game changer for them 
I guess so, but I don't know. They just they just did, you know. I was really I did bring an older older dog with me, and I was very very conscious of how how I used her and when I used her and how often because I didn't want her to to um, you know buckle in the heat. So I was very careful with her you know, to make sure I got a lot out of her. And yeah, she, she was great. But yeah, I, I guess they just, they just adapted. Yeah. So how old were they, Alice? Uh, I think they probably would have been, you know, anything from three to seven. Okay. So not long after you landed in Australia, disaster struck one day in a shearing shed, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I broke my leg. Um, story of my life. Just come out of plaster from breaking my leg in June. In the sheep yards. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, a, a dog leapt over the front handlebars of the motorbike. Um, she was riding on the fuel tank and, yeah, she must have lost her balance and leapt over the front and sort of hit the front tyre and then pushed off it. And it just sort of jackknifed her. I, I was just taking off. Like, I didn't even have momentum. You know, I think in hindsight, if I had momentum and was riding along, she just would have bounced and nothing would have happened. But yeah, the, the bike just jackknifed and then fell on me and, and it, it broke my leg. So yeah, that, that changed, changed my, my farming dream a little bit. So what did you do? Um, yeah, multiple operations and, you know, told I wouldn't farm again, so give up. And, and yeah, that's when I started applying for sort of more agribusiness jobs um, with no skills, you know, like no skills at all in this field. But I sort of thought I could learn and, you know, get get into it and applied for lots of jobs and, and didn't get them. And then, yeah, someone, someone put my name forward. I actually don't know who it was to this day, but someone put my name forward to go and work for Pfizer in New Zealand or who's now known as Zoetis and and they came and interviewed me in Australia and yeah they gave me the job on the spot and said would love you to start and I said well I don't want to come back to New Zealand so sorry I'm not taking it you know and then they started offering more money and said come on Alice like it's a recession we're in at the moment I think you should take this it's a bit of safety so I said well I'll take it so long as um, the first opportunity of a, a job coming up with the company back in Australia I, I get that option and so that was agreed upon and then I worked for them in New Zealand for another three years and then I did a bit of time in Europe and America and then I decided I just wanted to go to Canada and, you know, live the dream. So I went there and ended up working for them there and then um, right as like it was the day before my visa was ending and I was flying home, um, they rang and said, you know, would you like a job in Australia? One's come up. So I changed my ticket and flew straight to Australia. Were you loving life at this point? Oh yeah, absolutely loved. You're just living, living the dream, you know, just really. And I think the, I used to often say to myself, you know, I'd, I'd stop and say, you know, Alice, like if, if someone told you tomorrow that you had six months to live, what would you do in that six months? And then I'd go and do it. Mm. And, and I think the, the, the weirdest part about that is that like I, I asked myself the other day that question, you know, not that long ago, I was having a, just a bit of me time and I was like, I'm, I'm really doing all these things. There aren't too many more things on my bucket list that I want to pick <laughs> off. Like, oh God. <laughs> and I think that is a, it is a challenge when you, when you are successful and doing all these things. I mean, people are forever saying to me, you know, once once the next, I mean, there's five books out now and they say, oh, what's your next book about? Like, like I just have to keep doing this. I'm like, well, actually, I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore. You know, I'm going to change. Oh, but you're so good at it. I'm like, doesn't mean I have to do it for life. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Push the limits, right? Yeah. So 
back in Australia working for Pfizer at the time, how long did you work for them for? Um, I did another three years here. What made you get out? I just woke up one day and went, you know, if I died tomorrow, I don't want good Pfizer rep written on my gravestone. (laughs) 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 I don't want something more than that. You know, I just, I was like... I want to go and do my own thing, you know, and, and I think there was an element there and uh, of, you know, a toxic culture that um, I was the youngest person in the business and and one of the most successful and so you copped a lot from that mm. too and I was like, I just, I don't want that, you know, I want to be supported in, in things and and I, I don't know what made me start my own thing but I just thought, you know, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to give it a go and and try and do something for myself but I didn't know what that something was at that point in time. But I just quit. Yeah. And so I, I handed my my phone and my car and my laptop back and I'm walking down the street and felt pretty good. It was a bit scary because, you know, where's your next paycheck coming from? And like I was so naive at the time that I hadn't even brought a car. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, I don't actually have any wheels. So. <laughs> <laughs> had to go and buy a car and and of course because you don't have payslips anymore um you know I, I couldn't get finance so a, a big chunk of my savings had to go onto a car but it was all right and um and then yeah I was you know walking past a camera shop and I just happened to stop and look in the window and thought to myself you know it's been a lot of years since I've had a hobby like horses I guess were a job but they were also a passion and a hobby like maybe I'll take up photography and and um so yeah I walked into the shop and I I said to the bloke across the counter I said um can you please sell me the most expensive camera that money can buy and and he just sort of looked at me and (laughs) and I just had this nice big payout you know from my job and uh he's like oh well sure and he got a bit serious about it and he said sure you know what do you currently shoot with and I said oh I've never owned a camera (laughs) he just looked at me and laughed (laughs) (laughs) I'll never forget it. And then, and then he says, okay, okay, so so what are you planning on doing with this camera? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Maybe I'll become a professional photographer one day. You know? <laughs> and I was being a bit sarcastic when I said it to him, you know. Um, and, and again, he just laughed at me and, and yeah, here we are today. From the saddle. From the saddle. Ray White Rural Dolby specialise in residential, rural and livestock sales marketing. The Darling Downs branch of the Australian Stock Horse Society is a non-profit organisation and together they host the largest affiliated Australian stock horse sale in the nation alongside an incentive camp draft program highlighting the quality pedigree, ability and performance of the Australian stock horse breed. The Dolby Stock Horse Sale. Follow them on Facebook. From the saddle. So all the year and no idea, you once again found yourself immersing yourself into unknown territory and taking a gamble because your gut said, hell yeah, here's another opportunity. What was it? Um, yeah, well, at the, at the time, the the big Brinkworth cattle driver just started. So, you know, the 18,000 cattle that Tom Brinkworth brought were, were being walked from Winton down to Hay. And I just, you know, took that as an opportunity. Oh, well, I'll, I'll go and test out my new camera and see if I can take some photos. So I spoke to the council and got um, the phone number for the driver and the directions for, for how to get there. And, yeah, I sort of brought some bacon and eggs and a loaf of bread and a newspaper and some milk and a carton of beer and 
went out there and um, just expected to, you know, take some photos for the day and, and come home and, you know, gave them these things just to say thank you because they were, you know, quite remote and then got asked to, you know, got asked to stay the night and then I stayed a few days and, and then I had to go home because, you know, I needed fresh underwear and clothes. <laughs> and <laughs> So, Alice, what, what, what interested you about this? Why did you decide the Brinkworth Cattle Drive? I mean, other than the obvious. Well, at, at that point in time, at that point in time, time, nothing interested me. You know, I was just like, oh, there's these cows going past. Here's something I can go and take some photos of. Like, I, I didn't have my plan to make a book at that point. You know, mm. I was just going out to see if I could use my new camera. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that, that was as far as the thought process went was – can I, can I take photos, you know? And, and so off I went and, and I, I remember getting home and like at that point I didn't even have a Facebook page. I don't even think I had a Facebook account, you know, I wasn't, wasn't into all that social media stuff. Anyway, I started something up and I put some pictures up and I just remember, um, you know, people saying, where on earth did you take that? They'd never seen anything quite like it in their life. It was mm. incredible. People started asking to buy it and I was just like, what? <laughs> You know, just just didn't. Yeah, I couldn't fathom what was going on, and and then I yeah had a meeting with uh, with a business coach, and you know showed him the photos and and t- told him about the the trip and what it was, and and it was actually him that suggested you know why don't you go back there and see if you can stay with them and do a book on it. So the first time that you packed your car up and you you rang Bill Little and said, hey, can I come and take some photos? You took all the goods with you, just no fresh undies, just your dog and a few good supplies for the drovers. Was, yeah, I was only going for the day, yeah. Absolutely. So you pull up and what did you see? What did you feel? Did you, you know, were you excited? What was it? What was it like? Well, I guess, you know, coming off the land and having, you know, worked cattle and things like that, I, it was just another mob of cows really mm. um, to me. And and I think more than anything, I was quite proud that I'd found my way there because the little mud map that the council guide drawn me was very much not to scale and missing a lot of roads and, and you know, yeah, it, it wasn't a very cool map. So where, where did you come from? Um, so I'd come from Toowoomba going out to Roma yeah, west of there. And then um, when I found them, I was like, oh, well, well that, that's good. I found them because there's no reception, no anything. And, and actually, as I as the cattle drive got going, couch it became how I found the drovers when I went between the mobs because you always got terrible directions from them and, you know, oh, they're down this stock route or they're here or they're there. And so I would just look for fresh couch it. <laughs> I remember one time I was going between mobs and and I got to this this T or this sort of crossroads and little did I realise the sign had blown around and I did take a wrong turn because I you know they said go down this road so I went left and I kept going and kept going and I'm like I, I really feel like I'm on the wrong road here but yeah the sign had blown around and I ended up running out of fuel that day oh, because. Shit. <laughs> I had nothing, so I went into a went into a, um, a house and yeah, managed to you know had some cash and gave them some money for some fuel. Oh gosh! All right, so pulling up to the Brinkworth Drive, you stepped out of your car and like other than cattle, what what did you see? Describe it for us, because there's a lot of listeners in a lot of countries that don't know Australia and what it looks like. I guess it was uh, forty degrees, flies dust, cow shit, a lot of cows, 
but at the same time, there was almost this element of silence, you know, because you are in the middle of nowhere and there's no traffic and things like that. And there were three people on horses. There were a few dogs barking that were in the kennels in the bottom of the truck. And the driver, Bill, came up to me and, and he sort of looked me up and down and he said, oh, you can ride a horse. And this was before <laughs> I even said, you know, hi, I'm Alice. And I'm like, yes, I can. And, and you know, he's quite a sort of stately sort of bloke and tall. And I was like, I found him to be quite gruff and unapproachable at that point. Like I was like, oh, like, what do I say here? You know? <laughs> I'm like, yes, I can ride a horse. Hi, I'm Alice, you know, and, and he's like, good, saddle this and get on it. And he was leading another horse and, and he sort of threw the rope at me and I, I just sort of thought, I don't think no's an option here. <laughs> so so I took it back over there and, and uh, one of the blokes that was at the at the truck gave me a saddle and I threw the supplies I had into their, into their fridge and their kitchen and, yeah, got on this horse. And I wasn't really sure if the horse was going to, to buck me off or if it was, you know, a, a safe horse. So I put on my cheapest lens and put my camera around my neck and, and off I went. And it, and it turned out to be the best way to get around um, because you could go anywhere and you never bothered to get the cattle and they always look natural. And, you know, on foot they actually stir a lot more than if you're on a horse. So, yeah, I, I sat on a horse for the whole thing. What was their camp like? Um, well, their camp was really good, you know. Uh, they had they had like a pretty much like a donger on a big old trailer which had a shower and a toilet and, and a kitchen in it for cooking. So, and you know, the drovers always cooked really good food and I'd always take groceries and supplies and things with me whenever I um, went between the mobs. Um, but, yeah, we, we ate really well and like Bill used to say, you know, if you feed a man or a woman, you'll always get a really good day's work out of them. You know, mm. it's, that's it's important to feed them well. So um, he probably made the best creamed rice I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> So did you find, Ellis, that they all talked to you or were they a bit reserved? Um, yeah, no, not initially, you know, and that's, that's something that even to this day you still, I still find happens to me. You, you pull out a camera or a drone or, you know, anything and bang, people just call you media and, mm. and they've got a, you know, quite a negative perception, especially the ag industry does over, over media. So hence you're always having to prove yourself. So it took a while for them to warm to me. But once they worked out that the best thing that they could do was just do their job and I would capture them really naturally and that I wasn't going to ask them to do anything and that, you know, I could swear as good as they could and, you know, <laughs> that I was willing to help out and, and I wasn't going to ask them to do odd things, you know, like I'm just going to capture your life as you live it. They soon really started to warm to it and to the point where over the, over the nine months they would ring and say, oh, we're coming up to this great location. Can you come back and shoot it? It'd be cool here. Or yeah, they, they really got involved. So Alice, you initially were only there, well, expecting to be there for a day, but you weren't. So did you love it? Like how did how did your stay over happen? Um, I guess like they worked out, you know, I rode a horse that day, got chatting with, you know, Lydia, but they're back at the mob. Turns out, you know, we'd both been to Canada, Canada. we'd done lots of things, we had a lot in common. Um, and and then they worked out, okay, she's not media, she's just a cool, like, you know, farm check and taking some photos and things like that. And again, I, I hadn't had my book concept at this time, right? I'm just this girl that's quit a job and come out to take some pictures and doesn't know what I'm going to do with my life. Mm. <laughs> um, and and so, you know, at the end of the day, I went to leave and, and they said, oh, no, no, you've got to stay the night. Like, you know, you've brought the stuff out and here's a beer. And, and I sort of went, oh, 
okay, you know, and I think as the day had gone on, they'd realised that I was more like them than than they had initially thought and, and quite happy to pitch in. And, yeah, we, we had a good barbecue that night and it was a lot of fun and sang and danced and laughed and, and then, yeah, the next morning I, you know, did a bit more and stayed that night and then was like, I've really got to go. And and so I left and thanked them all and said, look, I'll send you some pictures when I get home. And then the wheels sort of went into motion with the book idea after that. What did you expect to find on your camera when you got home? I'm not really sure. I guess, you know, I was I was really adamant to learn how to shoot manually. You know, I was like, I don't want to put this on auto and do things, you know, automatically. I really want to understand how the dynamics of, of manipulating light and playing with light works for the camera. So there was lots of stuff on there that wasn't sharp or was too dark or was too bright because I was learning about the settings. But I made a rule that you know, when I was shooting, because I, I always knew that time was money. And, and I was like, well, all the time that I have to spend editing things at the other end is, is you know, value to me that, that I don't want to put in here because that's my, my precious time. So I taught myself and made a rule that I was always going to shoot as though I was shooting with film. Because back in the day, you had to get it right with film because it was expensive to print, you know. Yeah. And so that's how I went into it was if I take it and it's wrong, I need to learn from this and improve on it next time. Not just keep clicking and and hope that one of them's okay, you know. And, and even to this day, I operate like that so that, you know, when I go through things, there's not a million pictures to have to pick and choose from and select and do things. So, yeah, there was a lot of learning curves. And, and I remember when I put the book together, there was photos there that I was just so in love with, but they weren't going to work in the book for, you know, focus reasons or blowouts or things that were too dark and lost definition. And yeah, I was gutted. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. You had to, you had to um, maintain that high level of quality uh, because that's, you know, that's what I've always strived for, and I wanted to produce the best I could. So, what happened once you landed home? Yeah, so I landed home and I, I downloaded these pictures and and started to have a play with them and had a look and. I didn't really think much of them. I just was like, oh, yeah, these are, this is what it was like sitting at the arse end of these cows on a horse. <laughs> <laughs> Threw them up. You know, I was pretty happy to have had a shower and washed my hair and got the dust out of the system. And, yeah, and then I put these pictures up and like, I just totally blew my mind how how things progressed from there. Um, people just loved it. And I was like, oh, it's just a mob of cows on the side of the road. <laughs> So you mentioned that um, you spoke with your business coach and the book idea was planted, which meant you had to head back out on the road. Yeah. So you were a little more in the loop on what could be expected by this stage. However, you were heading to different camps. How good were your navigation skills at this point? Uh, I'm pretty good. I mean, I've got my way around the world and I've got my way around Australia working for Pfizer and things like that. So, so not bad. Like I wasn't worried about heading back out there at all. I was probably more worried about my car because I didn't have a four wheel drive and, you know, these places are remote and mm. yeah, there's quite a few times that I had some wonderful blowouts and <laughs> flat tires and, <laughs> um, you know, that more than anything. Uh, was probably a concern for me. So I did end up upgrading my car. So being a female in what is, you know, um, I guess a strong masculine environment, 
and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of capable women working just as hard as the men in the rural sector, but we do naturally have our limits. How did you find this on the drove? Um, I guess not too bad. I'm not ever analysing that sort of stuff. You know, I, I, I just live it and do it. And yeah, I mean, it's my choice to work in a male dominated industry. So I don't try and make a point of segregating myself or trying to put a definition between the sexes and that like I choose to be there so I'm going to get on with it yeah and do you find that the men were you know like throughout your book no one really sort of was backwards with you you know they were mostly well received to you walking into their camp was that the case Yes and no, like some some were and some weren't. But once they got to know you, and once they realised that that I was a real person with really good intentions, and a, trying to give a positive outlook and and give these people some acknowledgement for the the role that they play in agriculture, they they were fine. You know, once they really got their head around that, they were good. But initially, some of them gave me a fairly cold introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so. I love to take photos just as a hobby, but as soon as I pick my camera up, all the men in my life put their head down, tell me to put it away. How did you get around this? <laughs> I sometimes have the best photos. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but not when they're cursing me while they're doing it. And Anyway. I guess I I would just, I've had this knack, I don't know whether it's just, yeah, just because of who I am, but I just continue to talk to them mm-hmm. and I just continue to talk like I'm not holding the camera and I keep my eye contact with them and I chat away and, and I often say to them, just do what you do and I'll make you look great. You know, like don't worry about the camera. Don't try and duck because that makes you look like a dick. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah, just do your job. And I'm not, like, I don't want you to look at me. I just want you to go about your daily work and I'll capture it, catch you in the moment doing your thing. And, and so you'd show them or you'd start off, you know, like if some were really shy, you'd start off with silhouette type photos and they'd think, oh, that's really cool. And then you just wouldn't tell them that you'd dial your settings back and get a really cool shot. And then you'd show them, they're like, oh, that's really awesome of me. And I'm like, yeah, so just do your thing and I'll do mine. <laughs> Perfect. And even even to this day, it's like that, you know, you, you because then obviously, obviously today, you're not spending as much time with these people to to capture what I capture. So I'm, you know, I'll often show them videos or photos of of similar type stuff to get them to believe in me. And I guess they're just, um, they're doing what they love to do and know what to do. So they're in their natural environment in themselves. And they are, like, you know, when they are just doing that, it, it is so cool. Like, it's really awesome to capture that stuff, you know, in, in the moment and, and that thought process and the, you know, the, the effort that they're putting in and just, you know, like one of the things that I said to my designer when, when I designed the book was I said, I want people to feel like they were there. They were part of that and they understand the heat and the flies and the long days and and what these people endured to move these cows, you know. Did you ever stop and think, I don't want to live this moment through my lens? Um, no, not really. And I, I tell you what's actually really cool, doesn't matter what the job is, is that especially because like sometimes I don't edit for eight weeks and then I'll go back and look at things and you get to relive it. 
And you're like, oh, yeah, I remember that day so well. Or, um, you know, and, and people often say to me, you know, oh, do you have a favourite place? And I'm like, oh, I don't have a favourite place because everywhere I go is unique in its own right. And the experience that I have when I'm there is with the people or what I see or what I do is you just can't compare it with anywhere else. So I just, I love it all. And it is what you make of it. Like people often say, oh, yeah, don't go there. That's a crappy place. I'm like, oh, um, I'll make my own opinion of it. <laughs> <laughs> Good way to be, Alice. Great way yeah. to be. Did you find the dynamic in each camp was really different? A little bit. I mean, yeah, not not not, not extreme. It wasn't, but um, you know, there were were a few different dynamics. I mean, there was a, a just a couple of young boys, um, Theo, the the Aboriginal boy, and and James Mills. You know, they were just doing it together, and like I, I used to think, who's feeding these two poor kids? Because <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Where do they find time for this? They were one of the groups that were were constantly watering their cattle on troughs because they were going down stock routes with no no water or bad waters. So they troughed all their water in, and then still had to walk their ten k's. You know, and I used to think, gosh, like, yeah, who's who's feeding these two boys? And so you'd try and cook a meal for them or do something. But yeah, the more time I spent with them, the better that they got, and and so. I go back to, you know, yes, my Jack Russell died out there. <laughs> um, and, and it was at that point I was like, I, I want to give up. I didn't want to be there anymore. I mean, yeah, Harry was my shadow and my everything and he went everywhere everywhere with me. And I just thought, well, if I haven't got him, like I want nothing to do with this anymore. And it was actually the drovers that like really pulled me aside and gave me the what for and said, you can't just give up because of your dog. Like, what about us? And you've done all of this great work and you've been here on this journey. Like you've got to keep going. And they sort of really made me pull myself together and finish it all and and get it all done, you know. I loved reading about how Bill responded to this in your book. Yeah. (laughs) It was so traumatic for you. Harry, he was your best mate and he was, you know, it was like you just stopped life and went to discover a new life and new Alice and but it was Harry that went with you so it was like the only familiar part you had and you lost him yeah I I did it was it was really sad and you know you couldn't cry because these are sort of you know tough people and tears don't go down very well in a drover's camp no (laughs) but I go down very well in agriculture full stop (laughs) (laughs) um you know so you just sort of had to be like and I was like well, I don't want to ride. I don't want to take photos anymore today. I just want to ride a horse. And they put me on this horse called Ice Cream, which was notorious for bucking everyone off. I'm like, thanks very much. <laughs> Great, I'm going to break a bone today. <laughs> but there was tactic to that, wasn't there? Yeah, I think there was. Anyway, Ice Cream was pretty good to me. But, um, you know, we, we had to move the camp to the other side and we were actually crossing over the highway and Bill took the truck and I took the, the troopy and trailer and things. And then, you know, we got in to go back to what I thought was back to the, the mob. And, yeah, he, he busted a move up the highway and went to the pub at, um, at Gulgawi and, you know, brought me a couple of years and I, yeah, I shotted them down pretty quickly and... <laughs> And then off we went back to the cutter, which was a really lovely gesture, you know, in, in the moment to uh, to do that. And, yeah, so so Harry's buried out there on the stock route somewhere and he was, yeah, a little bit later on replaced by Barney, who who's his own superstar these days. <laughs> <laughs> Alice, sadly, the drove, well, not sadly, remarkably, I guess, the drove did come to an end and 
you know, you speak in your book that you were actually not ready for it to end. Yeah, I guess it had become like maybe it was my avoidance strategy for starting a business and, you know, getting back into things. I, I, I used it as a giant holiday and it gave me a real mental break from from what had been a pretty uh, massive career. So that was great. But, yeah, it came to an end and it was sort of like, well, now I have to work out how to put this stuff together and do all of this, you know, which I guess was scary because I had no idea what I was doing. So before you did all that and the last lot of the cattle were walked through and you're sitting there going, this is the end, I'm not ready for it to end, what did all that feel like? Yeah, it was, it was a bit surreal, I guess, and I, I was sort of like, what, what am I going to do tomorrow? <laughs> you know, like, do I have to turn around and go somewhere? Like, uh, yeah, what what happens now? You know, and it was just all of that, all of that unknown, and uh, you know, but at the same time, y- you knew that there was a big task in front of you that had to be done. But it was like, where do I start? You know, like, what do you do to make this happen? And it was really scary because there was no one there guiding me as to how to do this or how to go about it. You know, I had a business coach that I could ring and tell him how scared I was, but even he didn't know how to go about that stuff. And yeah, we just had to work it out. You know, but but that's one thing that I love. And I talk about that a lot in The Winding Road, that I actually love the unknown because, you know, if we always do what we always did, we'll always get what we always got. So learning this process was like, well, I can do this differently. I don't have to do this, you know. By the book. Yeah, exactly. You immersed yourself into this business. You know, you were like, what do I want to look at? Um, What do I want the book to look like? So you researched, but you put a post out on Facebook calling for a designer. You found the designer. Then all of a sudden, you had to scale down 10,000 images to like 1,100. Yeah. Yeah, that was a big job. I bet. Yeah. And especially when I reckon each image you'd hold pretty close to your heart. Yeah, you did. Yeah. And there, yeah, you, you really did. And, and you'd always try and find new angles and different things. And it was tough to, and I argued, I had a friend come and help me and we argued black and blue over some <laughs> pitch. <laughs> you know, but I think the best images, you know, rose to the surface at, at the end of it and, and all came together really well. So you compiled the book and you paid the money to have it printed. Yep. How did that feel? Well, that was pretty scary. I mean, like I, I did approach, you know, publishing companies saying, did you want to publish my book? They all sent back an email that said, well, it takes up to 12 months for us to, to decide if we're going to publish your book or not. And then some of them came back and said, no, thanks. Who would want a book about drovers? <laughs> um, and so that's when I was like, well, I'm not going to sit around and wait for them. I'll do it myself. And because I knew 60 Minutes and Landline were going to do a story on it, I wanted to utilize them as sort of my marketing for this, you know, because people would still have this story fresh in their minds. So I wanted to get it out, you know, when that was coming to air. So, yeah, I self-published it. And then during the process of that, someone approached me again that I had been to for publishing and said, no, they wouldn't. And then, yeah, in their email said to me that if I choose to self-publish, then bookshops won't support me. And I just sort of, that night I cried and I was like, well, how the hell else do you sell a book if you can't sell it in a bookshop? (laughs) You did though. Yeah, yeah, I I did. But it it, it was a long journey. But, you know, I guess... For every shop that that I got on board that stocks my books, you know, a dozen more said no. 
and and the nose hurt a lot because it's my blood, sweat, and tears, and my investment, and you know, you you are emotionally connected to this thing that you've made, and and you gambled a lot, Alice. You gambled a lot to have those books in your life. I guess so. I mean, I I guess it's one of the things I look back at now. At the time, it felt really like a massive gamble, and and now it you know so much has been and gone, and so much more has happened that I feel like that was a little gamble. Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, and and so often you, I find I. I struggled to go back to that emotion of it in a really connected way because it ended up being a success. But yeah, it was a massive roller coaster ride at the time. Like even just when the books arrived and or when I hit print on it, you know, I took a screenshot of my bank balance because I had zero dollars and zero cents to my name and had to go contract mustering while I waited for them to arrive. And then you find out bookshops won't support you and and then they arrived and and I remember, you know, putting a box on the table and I couldn't even open it. I just went to bed because I was like, what's in the box? (laughs) (laughs) And I was too scared to look. And the next morning I, you know, got up and opened the box and I was like, oh, yep, that's what I thought it would look like. You know, I was really like neutral about it. I was like, oh, no. (laughs) I wasn't even excited. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, but, But I think, see, I feel like that comes from you know, my upbringing and success is not being celebrated, right? So I played it down Mm. in in my own psyche. And and it's actually something, you know, as years have gone by and I've had staff and staff have done wonderful things with the business and different things, like I've had to learn that it's important that we celebrate those successes because, you know, it's part of the journey and it is a big deal. (laughs) Well, I'm so glad that they looked like you expected them to. Yeah. (laughs) That would have been a disaster if it all went really bad. Yeah, no, it was it was pretty. But but you know, like people often think, oh, you know, you're self published, and it's like it comes with this instant stigma that you've just been to the local library and printed it on the photocopier and thrown some staples in it. I'm like, no, no, I'm actually my my printer, you know, prints Encyclopedia Britannica and all the Lonely Planet books and all the Scholastic books that are in schools all over the world. Like I chose a printer that was really really high end. Yeah, I could have gone to a printer that was cheaper. Yeah. But that's not how I operated. You know, I wanted people to have a really good quality item that would stand the test of time and last and and look high-end, you know, and be high-end. So being self-published means that you have to do all the legwork and it's all on your back. Yes. So, Alice, how long before having your books land onto your coffee table to becoming a national and international bestseller? I think it was about... um, four months or something. What? Yeah, it wasn't long. <laughs> I mean, initially no one wanted it, right? And I ended up giving them all away and, <laughs> and drowning my sorrows going, well, 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 that was fun, but it was an epic failure. <laughs> <laughs> so you went back out on the route to sell the books to the towns that, I guess, experienced the Brinkworth Drive. And like you said, a lot of them didn't want it and there were a lot of no's, but four months and you had a bestseller? 
Yeah, well, uh, you know, I guess, yeah, I, I tried, you know, news agents, cafes, gift shops, butchers, you know, supermarkets, country clothing stores, Sadbury's, like anywhere I knew people went on a daily basis and, and no one wanted it. And, and in the end, I just thought, well, yeah, this is a mistake. I'll just give them away. I don't need three pallets of books collecting dust at my house. So just get rid of them. And, and so I did. And then, you know, it went nuts and people wanted them. And I mean, I ended up selling my car to pay to print more books. And by the time the next 5,000 books arrived, they were sold out before they even hit the ground, you know. So, so I'm a bestseller without stock. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do things by halves, Alice. Yeah. And, and then from that day on, I just vowed that I would never, ever, like, let it run out of stock because it was just horrible, all these back orders, you know, and boxes. And, and you know, back then, like, I was, I was just so in its infancy. I mean, people... I don't even have a website, right? And people would ring up and say, I'd like to buy a book off the author and and I'm like speaking and there was this awkward silence (laughs) on the phone because, you know, I called myself Al Maven. So everyone thought Al was a bloke, but then they're like, Al's a girl. And they're just like, this is really strange. And then people would say, oh, yep, can you post the book to this address? I'm like, no worries, send a check to this address. And I'd post these books out to people before I received a check in the mail. Yeah, and, and, you know, to this day, I've never, ever had anyone not pay for their books. In fact, the oh. other day, like on my website these days, there's, um, you know, bank deposit or credit card options mm-hmm. for them. And someone, you know, had opted to do bank deposit. I sent their order out and they got their order and, and were so flabbergasted by it that they rang me up and said how amazing it was. And he said, but I've just looked at my bank account and I can't see where I've paid you. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, can you double check at your end? And so I had a look that night and I rang him back. I'm like, yeah, you're right. You haven't paid me yet. <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah, I'll transfer it now. And, and, you know, that is, I think, one of the most wonderful things about, you know, I do what I do because it's not about money. It's about showcasing the people in agriculture and what they do. And it's the bigger picture of things that I don't attract people to my stuff that aren't good, honest Samaritans. I just, yeah, seem to get really wonderful people. That is incredible. Yeah. How does it feel to reflect back on all those uncertain times, the heartaches and that knot and sinking feeling inside your stomach, remembering all those people that said you couldn't? What would the 15-year-old Alice say now? I guess, you know, it's... Tell me I can't and I'll show you I can. Yes, preaching <laughs> not, to the and choir. Not in a, and not in a arrogant way, more of a, you know what, if I can show you that, that anything is possible, maybe you too will start to think that way. Yes. You know, like if I can guide you that like if I can do this, you can do this too. And and people often, you know, w- would say to me, oh, you know, um, you're so lucky to do what you do for a living. And it used to really wind me up. And I thought, you know, what can I say to these people as a, as a response? And I used to ask really successful business people, say, what do you say when people say you're so lucky? And you get the classic sort of, oh, you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get response or isn't it amazing how fast overnight success happens? And I was like, nah, they're not my lines. And they're, they are having a stab back at someone, you know? So I'm like, no, I can't say that. And I was like, I really want to say something that, makes people think, you know, makes them walk away and, and think about that. And I've spent years trying to think about it. And, and these days when people say that to me, you know, my response to them is, well, it's not luck, it's a choice. I choose to do this. 
and I choose to do all the good, the bad and the ugly. I choose to forego being able to go to friends' weddings and babies being born and being a local in a community and, you know, all these things. I, I choose to miss out on these things in order to do what I do. Perfect. And it just stops people in their tracks and they go, yeah, you're right. She, she, like she does choose that and you don't hear me complain about it or, you know, because it, it's a choice. That's right. You choose your hard. Yeah. And, and like all of the things, you know, like I, I chose to self-publish, I chose to do those things. Whatever comes with that is challenging. It's mm. You're not giving up and you're not saying, poor me, but sometimes you're like, I just don't know what to do <laughs> <laughs> or how to do it. Or like I, I remember when I won that award, I never told anyone. Like the award's probably still in the box packed up in my container at home or something and has never seen the light of day because back then, you know, the word entrepreneur was kind of a bit of a – a fluffy pipe dream kind of word that no one really understood and, oh, you know, they're having a go but it'll fall over and they'll fall back into sync with society soon enough, you know. Like it wasn't a celebrated word. It was you were the black sheep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I never really told anyone about it because, yeah, I just felt like people wouldn't understand and it, it wouldn't resonate, you know. It's a bit like when when the grower books came out and I was asked to go to Parliament House and speak to the Prime Minister. It was right at the time when, you know, there was a change in government and then everyone hated the Prime Minister. And and so I've gone and given this speech and it's amazing and, you know, it was one of the biggest highlights of my life and no one cared. (laughs) (laughs) Because no one liked the Prime Minister, you know. And and I had to sort of remind myself at that point that, okay, right at this moment, this is not great in the public eye, but you will always own the fact that you got asked (laughs) from Parliament House to give this presentation. Like, use it in 10 years' time. It's still going to hold value. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Alice, you have an incredible story and I have thoroughly enjoyed talking to you today and I do thank you so much for sharing this with us. Yeah, no, thank you. It's it's been wonderful. We we got through a bit of life and a bit of the driver. So we did. May, maybe down the track we'll have to talk about the driver and the grower books and the winding road and lock it in. And my latest platform that's just launched. Oh <laughs> yes, lock it in. We would love to have you back. Yeah, no worries. Thank you so so much. My pleasure. Thanks to our sponsors, Ray White Rural Dolby and the Darling Downs branch of the Australian Stockhorse Society. Follow them on Facebook. I'm Caitlin Hewitt, the founder and co-host of From the Saddle. I started this podcast because I knew important stories from rural Australia weren't being told. We hear stories of triumph and tenacity, heartache and loss from rodeo riders, outback ringers, cattle traders, bronze sculptors and more. From the Saddle is an independent podcast. It's just us telling stories that matter to our community and we are so stoked that nearly 100,000 people have joined us for the ride. We're looking for partners this season to help tell these stories because we think they're worthy of being told. They're a part of our history and possibly our future. If you're interested, we'd love to hear from you.